0: I was 10 years old when the original Exorcist movie came out. And despite my repeated requests, my parents would not take me to see it because it was rated R and scary. Now, at the time, um, we lived in a house on top of a hill in Sunland, Tujunga, just below the local drive-in theater. And you can see where this is going. When The Exorcist came to our drive-in theater, I found my dad's binoculars and snuck out on the patio and watched it with no sound through the binoculars, and I still had nightmares afterwards. Movies like The Exorcist portray a reality where there's an unseen spiritual war between good and evil. According to the Gallup organization, a poll they did last year, about two-thirds of Americans believe in the reality of this unseen spiritual war. Back in 1986, a Christian novelist named Frank Peretti used fiction to try to capture what this spiritual war might look like in his book, This Present Darkness. And Peretti's novel hit a nerve and became an instant bestseller among Christians, since Peretti's book in 86, tens of thousands of books about spiritual warfare have been written. Some are excellent reflect a careful biblical worldview about angels and demons, but most are frankly kind of bizarre and speculative. Some suggest that reptilian aliens live among us, appearing as people. Others suggest um, worldwide devil-worshiping conspiracies. What should we as followers of Jesus make of all this? What should we think about spiritual warfare? We're currently in a six-week series through the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible. And we're calling this series Jesus' Revelation because the book of Revelation pulls back the curtain to reveal Jesus to us. In the Apostle John's first vision in Revelation chapter 1, we saw Jesus revealed as our king, our priest, and our prophet. And then last Sunday in John's second vision in chapter 5, we saw Jesus revealed as the powerful lion who is also the sacrificial lamb, who alone is worthy to carry out God's plan of salvation for the world. Today we jump to John's fourth vision. In Revelation chapter 12, and in chapter 12, when the curtain is pulled back, we find Jesus revealed as a participant in an unseen spiritual war in heaven and on earth. So if you're able, would you stand as we look from John's fourth vision in Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. John writes, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to, the throne, to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. You can be seated. In his fourth vision, John sees a woman about to give birth to a baby. And the fact that this woman is called a sign reminds us that many of John's descriptions are meant to be figurative. They're not intended to be taken literally. But what exactly is this woman a sign of? Some say she represents Eve from the book of Genesis. Others say she represents Israel because of the 12 crowns. Some say she symbolizes Mary, the mother of Jesus. And still others say that she represents the church. And a case can be made for each of these ideas. I think this woman represents God's people across time. That includes Eve, Israel, Mary, and the church. God's people around the world and across time, just as the seven lampstands in chapter one and the great multitude of people from all the nations in chapter five represented God's people across time and space. I think this woman here in chapter 12 does as well. And that brings us to the dragon in this vision. This dragon is also described as a sign. In verse 9, this dragon is identified as the ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan. So Satan is not a literal dragon. The dragon is a symbol for Satan. See, the Bible suggests that before God created the world in Genesis chapter 1, a high-ranking angel of God named Lucifer rebelled against God. And this vision we read about in Revelation 12 jumps back and forth between Lucifer's rebellion before creation and Jesus coming to the earth and doing the work of God. In verse 3, when the dragon's tail flings a third of the stars to the earth, that probably refers to the other angels that joined Lucifer in his heavenly rebellion. And that's why the dragon is said to have his own angels in verse 7 and again in verse 9. The New Testament calls these fallen angels demons or evil spirits. This war in heaven described in verses 7 through 9 is probably also talking about Lucifer's rebellion and how God's angels who remained, including Michael, a powerful archangel, fought Lucifer and his rebellious angels And Lucifer and his rebellious angels lost that heavenly war and were cast to the earth. And shortly after that is where Satan appeared as a serpent in Genesis chapter 3. So the dragon represents Satan. And then there's the child that was born. This child, this baby that's born is clearly Jesus, the king Revelation 12 is a version of Christmas you won't read about on a Christmas card or sing about in our Christmas carols. Although someone after the first service told me they have a dragon that's part of their nativity scene that's off in the background because of this passage. In verse five, Jesus's entire life is condensed into just a few words. He's born and then he's snatched up to heaven. And this, this describes, the this snatching up to heaven describes Christ's ascension, where 40 days after his resurrection, he ascended back to heaven at the right hand of the throne of God. So verse 5 includes Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension back to heaven. When verse 4 says that the dragon tried to devour the child, That's describing Satan's attempt to try to prevent Jesus from fulfilling God's redemptive plan of salvation on earth. In N.T. Wright's book, Evil and the Justice of God, N.T. Wright says that Satan tried to stop Jesus in a variety of different ways. Satan worked through political power to try to stop Jesus. Satan lurked behind King Herod's evil attempt to murder Jesus as a child. And the dragon was lurking behind the Roman governor's decision to crucify Jesus. A spiritual war raged within the political power structures of imperial Rome. that tried to prevent Jesus from doing what God had sent him to do. But Wright also points out that Satan also tried to stop Jesus by working through God's people. During Christ's lifetime, many of God's people had lost sight of their covenant promises to God. Many of Israel's spiritual leaders had built unholy alliances with the Roman Empire in order to acquire power and money and fame for themselves. In fact, when given the opportunity to request the Romans release Jesus, the chief priests are recorded to have said, we have no king but Caesar. Jesus was arrested because one of his own betrayed him and the rest ran for their lives. A spiritual war raged among God's own people to prevent Jesus from accomplishing God's plan. Satan also attacked Jesus personally throughout his life. He tempted him for 40 days in the wilderness. He harassed him in the garden of Gethsemane before his arrest. The dragon tried all that it could to try to devour this child. Nevertheless, the child was victorious. Verse 10 says that salvation and the kingdom of God have come to this earth because of the child. This child brought God's kingdom from heaven to earth and opened the doors of salvation for us because the dragon couldn't stop the child. So failing to stop the child, the dragon turns on the woman the people of God, and the original Christians who first read Revelation knew this better than anyone because they were suffering as the Roman emperor Domitian was trying to exterminate the church by persecuting Christians. The dragon was still working through political power structures. Verse 6 says that the woman fled to the wilderness where God protected her. And this is a symbolic way of saying that God always protects his people when they are persecuted by the dragon. But this protection doesn't mean that they don't suffer. It means that God sustains them to persevere in their faith when they're suffering. Now, I don't think that the 1,260 days in verse 6 is intended to be taken literally. Throughout Revelation, the numbers are often symbolic. And throughout Revelation, 42 months or 1,260 days is symbolic of the suffering that God's people experience on earth throughout all time. So this isn't merely talking about a future tribulation period. It's talking about all the tribulations that all of God's people encounter and experience around the world. When the curtain is pulled back, Revelation 12 reveals that Jesus vanquished evil. The child slayed the dragon. And now knowing that his days are numbered, the dragon attacks the woman. Satan attacks the people of God. Some have compared spiritual warfare to World War II. On June 4th, 1944, or June 6th, 1944, Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy in what we now call D-Day. Normandy was the pivotal battle, the turning point in World War II that all but assured victory for the Allied forces. But it would still be nearly a year later, on V-Day, May 8th, 1945, that the war would finally end. Because Christ vanquished evil once and for all on the cross. As Christians, we live in between D-Day and V-Day, in between the child's decisive defeat of the dragon and the day the war is finally over. This passage reveals to us that when we worship together, that worship is spiritual warfare. And I think there's three ways this is true. First, in worship, truth corrects deception. God's truth corrects the dragon's deception. The dragon is the great deceiver. In verse 9, the dragon is described as the one who leads the whole world astray. All the way back in Genesis 3, the serpent was the one who questioned God's command. Did God really say that? In John chapter 8, Jesus calls Satan the father of lies we are all vulnerable to deception. And in fact, people who don't think they're vulnerable to deception are actually the most vulnerable. How would any of us know if we were deceived? After all, deceived people don't know that they're deceived. In John Mark Comber's book, Live No Lies. Comer says that our fight with the devil is first and foremost a fight to take back control of our minds to their captivity to lies and to liberate them with truth. And by the way, if you want to read a great book on spiritual warfare, highly recommend John Mark Comer's book, Live No Lies. What are some of these lies that we live by? How about the lie that what God claims to be true isn't really true? Or the lie that God's love isn't real. Or the lie that God is not really working out a good plan in your life. Or working out his plan in the world. Or the lie that you can't really trust anyone. Our worship together is warfare. Because when we worship together, we are inviting God's truth to replace these lies that we live by and to bring the truth. This is why the Bible plays such an important, significant role when we worship together. It's why we devote nearly half of our worship time to the teaching of God's word. It's why we have pastors who have been trained to teach and to study and to communicate the Bible with clarity and accuracy. Because worship is warfare. Because it exposes the dragon's deception and replaces it with God's truth. Secondly, assurance replaces accusation. In our worship together, God's assurance replaces the dragon's accusations. Verse 10 says that the dragon uses accusation to attack the people of God. He is the accuser of our brothers and sisters. The word accuser literally means one who speaks evil against another person. These accusations could be true or they could be false, but either way, they come from evil intent, from a desire and intent to do harm. Sometimes Satan uses our own thoughts to accuse us. Inner thoughts like, God will never forgive me for that. Or if people really knew the truth about me, they would never accept me. Sometimes the accuser works through other people, even through the people of God. When other people assassinate our character, whisper untrue rumors, that's the work of the accuser. I've told you before about a pastor I know who was called to a new church a couple of years ago, and right after he started at this new church, one leader in that church started spreading a lie about him. This lie had to do with his politics, and it was completely untrue. But nevertheless, the lie spread, and eventually that one lie, that accusation, which was false, destroyed that pastor's ability to lead, and he quit after a year at that church and eventually left pastoral ministry for good, a casualty of the accuser working through God's people. Let's never forget that Satan was able to use God's people in the past to oppose Jesus. And the accuser can gain a foothold in God's people today when we speak evil against each other. Worship is spiritual warfare. And when we worship together, God's assurance of forgiveness silences the dragon's accusations. You know, one example of this is when we take communion each month. Whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we often pray a prayer of confession of our sins together. And after we're led in this prayer of confession where we confess our sins, one of our pastors or one of our leaders speaks comforting words of assurance from the Bible about God's promise of forgiveness. Confessing our sins and hearing the words of assurance, the words of pardon can break the power of accusation in our lives. Worship is warfare. Finally, in worship, courage overcomes intimidation. The dragon likes to intimidate God's people. In fact, the very name Satan means adversary. In this war, the dragon attacks the woman through threats of harm and death in order to intimidate us. And this is especially true for Christians who live in parts of the world where it's costly to follow Jesus. Despite our increased secularization here in the U.S., we still have lots of freedom to practice and live out our faith in Jesus. But many Christians around the world in places like China, North Korea, Nigeria, and Iran face significant persecution for following Jesus. According to the magazine Christianity Today, 365 million Christians today live in nations with high levels of persecution and discrimination. Revelation is reminding us that because the child has defeated the dragon, We don't have to be intimidated. The dragon failed to stop Jesus from coming to earth to begin God's plan, and the dragon cannot stop that plan from reaching its final conclusion. So there is nothing to fear. No reason to be intimidated. Verse 11 says that we triumph over the dragon by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. The blood of the lamb refers to Christ's victory on the cross when you think about it, Satan thought that he had defeated Jesus by crucifying him. And then Jesus turned the tables and turned that defeat into the very basis of his victory over Satan. That's why the Bible says in Colossians 2.15 that when Jesus died on the cross, he disarmed the demonic realm. He publicly humiliated evil and he triumphed over Satan. And we also overcome by the word of our own testimony. The word translated testimony in verse 11 is the Greek word martyria. It's where we get the English word martyr from. The word means to bear witness, even under the threat of death. You see, our testimony are not the stories that we tell about ourselves. Our testimony is our public allegiance to the lordship of Jesus over our lives. Whenever we baptize someone or receive a new member here at Glenkirk, they stand in front of us and they confess their faith in Jesus as their savior and as their Lord. They're bearing witness. They're giving testimony. For John's first readers and for many Christians today, doing that carries great risk. God's people defeat the dragon when they don't shrink back from the consequences of testifying to the lordship Of Jesus. Worship is warfare because it gives us courage. As we sing songs together, as we pray together, as we offer prayer after our services with our prayer team, God fuels our courage to stand firm in our faith. Worship gives us courage. This vision reminds us that there is a spiritual dimension behind what we see. Spiritual warfare is real. The Bible puts it this way in Ephesians 6, as as Amy prayed during the prayer earlier, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Ephesians 6 then urges us to put on the full armor of God so that we can stand firm in this war. And the various parts of the armor listed in Ephesians 6, they're all defensive so we can stand our ground when spiritual opposition comes. In other words, in this spiritual war, we don't need to attack the dragon. We don't need to lead an invasion into enemy territory. Jesus has already done all of that. We just need to stand our ground to hold the line when spiritual opposition comes. Many Christians today have lost sight of this spiritual battle. Instead of standing firm against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, many Christians have been tricked into thinking that other people are their enemy to fight. They spend their time wrestling against flesh and blood instead of wrestling against principalities and powers. And when we lose sight of this spiritual war, we insult and slander and dehumanize other people because that's what happens in a war. This spiritual war is real, but other people are not our enemy, no matter how much we disagree with them. When I was 10 years old, watching The Exorcist through binoculars with no audio. It gave me nightmares. In some ways, John's vision in Revelation 12 is like seeing this unseen spiritual war without audio and through binoculars. But this glimpse behind the curtain, instead of seeing a Hollywood-produced movie, it's a glimpse into a reality that's normally hidden from view for us. This glimpse behind the curtain should not give us nightmares or make us afraid. If anything, it should comfort us, encourage us, and anchor us in the reality that the dragon was defeated by the child. God protects his people so they can persevere in their faith, even amid suffering, so that we can hold the line even when spiritual resistance comes against us. All because the child slayed the dragon. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glimpse behind the curtain and for the assurance that the victory was won through the cross. God, we give you thanks and praise that that victory was won. And so when spiritual opposition comes against us, Lord, That all we need to do is stand firm in our faith, trusting that your truth will expose deception, trusting that assurance will silence accusation, and that courage will defeat intimidation. God, thank you for these promises and this glimpse behind the curtain. God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.